to sing 596 stanzas one and four. The melody you know well. This is a new hymn in English uh, found only in LSB. It is a translation of a great Paul Gerhardt hymn on uh, holy baptism. So uh, you, you know the Nun Freut euch melody. You know that melody from Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice. But this is uh, this great hymn. My friend and colleague and a smarter guy than I, John Veeker, uh, translated this into English. Great text. So we'll sing for Bible class stanzas one and four. Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord, as we experience the wickedness and distress of the world in which we live, teach us in our daily morning and evening prayers to look to your loving kindness to sustain and comfort us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Take a look on your hymnal to Psalm 92, which is the psalm for the week. And I know that there are catechesis notes. Uh, at the top of the congregation at prayer. Uh, But yet, I want to draw your attention to some things. Uh, The opening verse says, very simply, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. That assertion is true at all times, no matter what. In good times and in bad times, in times of great suffering and grief and hardship, as well as in times of great joy. It is good to give thanks to your name and to sing your praises, O Lord Most High. To declare your steadfast love in the morning. So part of our morning prayers are alluded to here, the daily life of the Christian to pray and in prayer to give thanks to the Lord. Do you notice, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but I'll state the obvious if you have. In the catechism, the morning and evening prayers, how do they begin? 
I thank you, my Heavenly Father. Stop. Morning and evening prayer. I wonder where Luther got such concepts. We don't follow Luther, we follow the Word of God. Well, I know Luther's not infallible, but when in the catechism he does what he does in the explanations or in the morning and evening prayers, it is deeply rooted and grounded in the scriptures. So, and in the Psalter in particular, which he knew by heart in Latin. So, would that we all knew the Psalter that way. And then, so, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. So, it's, it's speaking about the daily morning and evening prayers of the Christian. Um, I think it, I would have preferred that the English Standard Version not be used because mainly it hadn't been tested yet. Um, but use it, it did. So you have verse 6, which uses some language which I think is a little bit unfortunate in the ESV. The stupid man cannot know. Uh, the fool cannot understand this. Um, stupid is not a very good word here um, because it implies a lack of intelligence. It's also, how many of you encourage your children not to use the word stupid? So I think it uh, was rather unfortunate. Um, senseless, uh, without, without sense, without knowledge. Pastor Gelba? No, just, it's, just a, it's an unusual word in Hebrew. It, it is, and, and it's... And it's, it's rooted, he said it's an unusual word in the, in the Hebrew. It's rooted in the idea that of, of a lack of knowledge and discernment and understanding and sense, in the sense of common sense, that is rooted in faith. Okay? So the senseless man or the, is the faithless man who cannot know. I mean, if you think about how many things very intelligent people endorse today. I mean, I mean there, it's, it, there's an irrationality behind unbelief. And I do root it into the things of creation which used to be taken for granted but are less so. You know, I mentioned last week the devastating forest fires in California. It used to be common sense that if we don't want to destroy life and property, maybe we should manage the forests. But no longer is that common sense. And you could say, Pastor, that's straying outside of uh, the biblical faith. Not at all, because the primary mandates before the fall into sin were have dominion, as well as be fruitful and multiply. And so when, when you're told by the world that, uh, Jody, 
you and Becca have too many children. You know, what do you do with that? And, and that type of rhetoric happens. And sometimes, God forbid, it even happens among Christians. I've had Christian grandparents tell their grown children, this is irresponsible for you to have children. Well, with all due respect, uh, that is setting aside of the word of God. You know, so be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. And that be fruitful and multiply is bordered on both sides in Genesis 1 with have dominion. Okay. Over the creation, the birds of the sea, the fish, the, the birds of the sea, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, sorry. <laughs> okay. So I wanted to point that out. But the reference to daily prayer, very significant. And the morning and evening prayers, I thank you, my heavenly Father, that we begin and end that way. This is our sixth week on the Catechism Ten Commandments. Christ fulfills the law for us, is on the banner. Uh, next week, it will switch over to uh, the Creed and six weeks on the Creed. But it is the close of the commandments along with a review of the primary text. So you shall have no other gods. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The primary text of the Ten Commandments. And then what does God say about all these commandments? He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So here in the close of the commandments, we have a function of the law highlighted in that the law threatens punishment. That's one of the functions of the law. And the law's threat of punishment has at least a twofold focus. One, for the sake of repentance. Okay, so the threat of punishment, to realize what it is that we deserve God's wrath and punishment, is used to bring us to repentance. But secondly, the law threatens punishment in order to coerce the flesh into being somewhat obedient. Okay? So speed limits and so forth curb the gross outbreaks of sin. So the threat of, if, if there were no punishment, you would do whatever you wanted. Like, you know, if, if there were no punishment for uh, burning the cities of Kenosha and Portland, you know, you'd go ahead and do it. Okay? So we have a vested interest as Christians in, as we talk, when we go into our, our day school discussion of theology here, we have a vested interest in promoting the left-hand kingdom to do what God has given the left-hand kingdom to do. And what God has given the left-hand kingdom to do is maintain order and to guard against anarchy and chaos. It is given, not, not only is a government to, to protect the nation from foreign invaders, but it is also the role of the left-hand kingdom to protect your home, your business. Okay? That is a biblical concept. 
which is part of natural law as well. So you don't have to go to the scriptures to find it, although obviously we as Christians do. But the role of, the, of law in the left-hand kingdom uh, has to be promoted by Christians. So in part, the close of the commandments is, are doing both. You know, the, the threat of punishment for the, for the function of the law being used to bring us to repentance but then also the threat of punishment that the law being used in the civil realm or in the Christian home or in the non-Christian home to maintain order. Okay. Now, when, when the catechism says God threatens to punish all who break these commandments, that really should not give us much comfort unless you can say, I've never broken any of the commandments. So according to the judgment of the law, we are under the threat of the law. And the only release from the threat of the law is in Christ who bore the punishment that the law demanded. So we've got two prayers on the, on the close of the commandments uh, for you. And this week, on specifically Tuesday, September 29th, is the Feast of St. Michael and all angels. So there's an additional reading from Revelation 12. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation, washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And the collect for St. Michael and all angels is also included. I did not proofread, and unfortunately, the collect for the six, what's listed as the collect for the 16th Sunday after Trinity is really last week's collect for the 15th Sunday after Trinity. So, Susan, you said there are copies of that on the script table? Yeah, on the counter, if you want. Unfortunately, with the hymnal, the collects are not put in the front, which is um, unfortunate, but I said that. Okay, so uh, bear that in mind. All right, let us go to the Lutheran Day School. It's Theology and Practice, Part 3, The Christian, Where Does He Belong?, on page 17 and following. I really should um, write an expanded version to um, take into account uh, developments in society and culture that um, need reflection. We have been trying the last two weeks to distinguish between, in the first week, the spiritual kingdom in its proper sense, is where God rules in the heart through the law and the gospel, through the word of God and the sacraments, to create and sustain faith, faith in Christ in the heart. That's the spiritual kingdom's work. So, when I use the law as a minister in the spiritual kingdom, it is not to uh, maintain law and order in society, curb the outer man, but it is the spiritual function of the law to bring about repentance and faith in Christ. Last week we discussed the secular kingdom or the left-hand kingdom, and this is where God rules not the heart, but outer man. Because of the problem of sin, there is the need for, as the commandments will speak of this week in the congregation at prayer, so it's kind of corresponding rather nicely, 
there is the need for the force of law. Just like in your home, there is the need to lay down rules and expectations for how life will be in the home. Otherwise, there is chaos. And in the home, those particular rules are to be followed, as it were, whether uh, little Johnny believes they're a good idea or not, it's quite beside the point. Okay, so mom and dad are in charge as, as servants of God, masks of God, to maintain order. And the necessity for that is because of the problem of human evil. Okay, so if children were conceived and born in a state of innocence, there would be no need for discipline in the home. But the need for discipline in the home begins already after birth. I mean, if, if baby has been diapered and fed and cuddled, finally there comes a time that baby has to go to bed. And baby may scream and holler about that, but finally there's a discipline there that is brought to bear that baby is put to bed. So the idea of discipline and the force of law extends already to the earliest ages. Okay? And the idea that law in the home protects from harm is an important one too. So that there are certain expectations that you don't poke your sister in the eye with a stick. Okay. Why? Because it harms her. And so there is no such thing as, you know, freedom of expression. Uh, in other words, uh, I like sticks, and part of my free expression is to poke my sister in the eye with a stick. Well, you might like to do that, but it is not given you to do. Now, Susan's got the look on her face like, who would ever allow something like that? But that is what we're doing in the society today. I mean, uh, in the name of free speech, you know, quote unquote peaceful protests, which are anything but. All right, so we'll have John do Andrew's part again as we get into the Christian, where does he belong? I like the sexist uh, masculine pronoun there. He, as opposed to where does she belong. Just, I'm only saying that because it's good to be politically correct, because incorrect, because you can't be anywhere else. Okay. Andrew, do you believe that you are a sinner? Yes. How do you know that you are a sinner? From the Ten Commandments. What do you deserve from God because of your sins? His punishment and damnation. Do you hope to be saved from your sins? Yes. Who do you believe in to save you? Jesus. What did Jesus do for you that you trust in him? He died for me on the cross for my forgiveness. Can you save yourself? No. Only Jesus can save us from our sins. Should you still love your neighbor and follow the Ten Commandments? Yes. Why? Because God said so, and he loves us, and we believe in him. 
Who is working in us when we love our neighbor and do good to him? Jesus. All right, now at the end of this conversation, I want you to observe very carefully. Should, we still love your, should you still love your neighbor? And Andrew said, yes. Why? And he said, because God said so. Now, I know that is deemed to be kind of old-fashioned and passe. You know, you have, to, you have to explain your reasoning, Cherie, so that the children understand that there is a good purpose behind this, okay? But, but actually, what Andrew is confessing here is what is related to faith, trust. Children are to be taught to trust mom and dad. Because mom and dad love them. Because mom and dad know what is good for them. Okay? So what is reflected in Andrew's response, because God said so, is, I believe in him. The Ten Commandments are good. I don't always keep them, but that doesn't mean they're not good. I believe in God and I trust him, and he's given me the Ten Commandments, and they define and describe what is good. God said so. And then he further amplifies the idea of faith by saying he loves us. And then takes us right back to where I began, and we believe in him. Okay? So if we didn't believe, we would not do anything. So works, as it were, what we do follows faith, what we believe. So Andrew is taught that the law of God is bigger than mom and dad. Okay? It comes from God who loves us, who has sent his son to die for us, and he gives us this that we might know what it is to love our neighbor. All right. So let's launch in. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take us a little bit more closely into the text. It's just uh, one, two, three pages and a little bit more. Andrew knows his relationship to God. He trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But he also knows his relationship to his neighbor. His, he loves his neighbor because of his faith in Christ. He trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, but he also lives for his neighbor's benefit so that God might do his neighbor good through him. Now, that's an important distinction there. The love for the neighbor, the doing good for the neighbor, is not for my benefit, but for my neighbor's benefit. He knows that God loved him enough to send his son to die for him and that God is also at work in him by faith to love and do good to his neighbor. He lives by faith in the Son of God who loved him, and yet it is not he who lives, but Christ who lives in him. And that's reflecting Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So it is a simple but profound understanding and way of life. Remember trust. And that's what the, left, uh, excuse me, the right-hand kingdom is all about. The Holy Spirit working faith in the heart. Okay? The faith in heart that the Spirit works in the heart by the gospel 
manifests itself in love for the world. Now, before discussing the place of a Lutheran day school in particular, it is necessary to explain the Christian's place in the world. Because the Christian has been baptized into Christ and called to faith in him for the forgiveness of sins, he has a calling from God in the world. What is that calling? It is the calling of faith and love. The calling to believe in Christ for salvation and to love your neighbor as he has loved you. This calling is often referred to as vocation and is lived out in the very concrete earthly offices and relationships that God has given us, such as father, mother, husband, wife, etc. Now, sometimes those relationships like father, mother, husband, wife, children, worker, are called vocation. But what this is highlighting here is the idea that the vocation, the calling, is actually the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel to trust in Christ. Now, it manifests itself in those stations, like husband, wife, father, mother, police officer, teacher, <clears throat> excuse me, whatever. So this is where there's an intersection, then, of where the right-hand kingdom exists for the creation of faith, reliance upon the grace of God, so that one might serve in the left-hand kingdom out of that faith with love to the neighbor. So this means that the Christian, as Christian, not only exists in both spheres, the spiritual kingdom and the secular kingdom, but our engagement in the secular kingdom is out of love for the neighbor. Now more about that in a few minutes, particularly given the times in which we are living in. Okay? And out of love for the neighbor, we ought to do X, Y, and Z. And I, we won't go to X, Y, and Z just yet, but we always have to ask ourselves the question, is that really love for the neighbor? Okay, I can't resist. I'll give you a foretaste. For example, out of love for the neighbor, we should close down the churches and not meet for the public preaching of the gospel. But is that love for the neighbor? It is actually not love for the neighbor, even though the world and individuals in it may scream against you that you're full of hate because you go to that church, Verge. You go to that church where they still stay open. You follow? And if you think I'm exaggerating, just do a little scanning of of the news, okay? So love for the neighbor is not always manifest, manifest itself in doing whatever the secular realm uh, dictates. Okay, through the ministry of the gospel, we are brought to faith in Christ for salvation and continually nurtured in that faith. Faith receives the gifts of salvation which God gives through his word preached and his sacraments administered. But this faith in the Christian also bears the fruit of love toward the neighbor. God wishes to benefit others through us in the lives that we live. That is what vocation is all about. These works of love certainly do not save us or earn God's favor, but rather show us to be the people of God who trust in him. Remember the conversation with Andrew. And love our neighbors because he first loved us. We believe that the works of a Christian in his vocation 
are really the works of God. And so <clears throat> the Christian finds him or herself in this wonderful position of not only being a Christian who believes under the spiritual kingdom, but also being a citizen of this world called by the gospel to serve the neighbor in love, even if the neighbor doesn't realize the neighbor is being loved. This description of vocation is outlined in the table of duties. These passages tell us not what to, uh, we do to earn God's salvation, but what he has done for us for the benefit of others. God's love and grace is active and through us by faith in very concrete and earthly ways for the benefit of others. None of us can boast about our vocation as if it were a work of our own doing or choosing, but we can boast in the Lord who has forgiven our sins and continually works his good in our lives. And he does so for others. All right, so let's move on to the authority of parents that it extends beyond the secular kingdom. Andrew, since mom and dad believe in Jesus, bless you, Jacob, what special job has God given them? To bring me to church, to tell me about Jesus, and teach me God's word. To bring me to church, to tell me about Jesus, and teach me God's word. Let that sink in. So, Christian mom and dad have the calling and responsibility, according to Andrew, I think he's right, to teach God's word. How many of you have heard ever things like, that's the pastor's job, or that's the church's job? Those types of assertions are rooted in the sinful flesh and the abdication of the God-given authority. Do mom and dad, do mom and dad love you? Yes. What is the most important thing that they do for you? They tell me about God, they forgive me, they bring me to church. Okay, now, this is going to lead in the trajectory of a, of a Lutheran school. But if that is the most important thing in the home, which it is, uh, Deuteronomy 6, these words which I command you, which are words of both law and gospel, command and promise, shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them with your children as you walk by the way, with your children as you lie down with your children as you rise up, with your children as you walk by the way. Now, I'm intentionally adding the phrase, with your children, because that's what the passage means. <coughs> These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children as you walk by the way, as you sit in your house, as you lie down, and as you rise up. Okay? So it not only speaks... What's very interesting here, it not only speaks about the function of a Christian father and mother to teach the Word of God, but it also spells out the concrete settings 
in which such teaching is to take place. And those concrete settings are the ordinary things of life. Going to bed, getting up in the morning, sitting around the table to eat. Now, if I said this to you, would you find it at all unusual? It is your responsibility as Christian parents to feed and clothe your children. Would you find that was shocking? Oh, shocking. Well, if that is essential to what it is to be a Christian parent, or any parent for that matter, how much more the inculcation of the Word of God? Dr. Corby, my teacher in catechetics, used to say, teach the parents, bless the children. And he, he, his genius there is a reflection of what the scriptures teach. If the hearts of parents are rooted and grounded in God's word, they will think of nothing else but the primary responsibility they have for their children is to give the word of God to them, to pass on their holy faith to them. Which then you can see by extension, as we will talk in greater detail next week, the Lutheran Day School is there to assist, not to take over, but to assist parents in their God-given responsibility. So there's a problem then if, well, I'm not going to do anything about catechesis at home because the kids come to the academy, they get daily chapel. Then they get pastor in the fourth grade, in the fifth grade, in the sixth grade, in the seventh grade, in the eighth grade. Glad that's off of my responsibility. And that's, that would be a very, very unfortunate way to think. Rather, what they've received here, we can celebrate, give thanks for, and talk about at home. All right. So Andrew knows very well that his parents do a lot more for him than punish him when he does wrong. He also knows that they love him unconditionally. He knows that although he is punished when he disobeys, he also receives their forgiveness. He knows that the most important thing mom and dad do for him is to teach him the word of God. Remember the conversation that opened up the study in the introduction where Andrew was asked, you know, do you know the creed? Yeah, how does it go? And he recites it. Is it true? And he's shocked to hear such a question. Well, of course it's true. Where did it come from? God's word. That's what those people didn't understand. Okay. So they bring him to church, and the word that they receive from Jesus in his preaching and teaching is a part of their life at home. The word of God gives them faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and teaches them how to live in the vocations that God has given them. So when we talk about teaching the faith and love and service to the neighbor, there's the progression. Out of faith comes the service of love in one's vocation. 
The explanation to the fourth commandment from the large catechism begins to teach us that the responsibilities of father and mother extend beyond their offices in the secular kingdom. Indeed, the Christian in general and the Christian pair in particular is a resident of both the spiritual and secular kingdoms. Earthly government was established after the fall of man into sin, but the offices of husband and wife, father and mother, actually predate man's fall. The secular estates were established by God to maintain order and bridle sinful man, whereas the offices of husband, wife, father, and mother had no such function before sin. Now, this is an important distinction. Um, I don't, I'm not saying that the, this is not a deliberate pun, but this truth trumps, in many cases, the authority of the secular offices. Okay? In other words, the authority of a father and mother over their children is maintained by the church to be a greater authority over them than the authority of government over them. You follow what I'm saying? So, in other words, uh, so Mike here had his children. He and Laura, as father and mother, have a higher calling to protect those children and to care for them both spiritually and temporally and educationally, if you will, emotionally, developmentally, than any civil ruler. That does not set aside civil authority, but civil authority is not to usurp the God-given authority of father and mother. When it has done this over the history of civilizations, it has been in various forms of dictatorship. You know, whether whether it's fascism, socialism, communism, and so forth, various forms of dictatorship remove the responsibility of the Christian father and mother to act according to conscience. And when conscience is violated in that way, uh, it leads to a breakdown and disintegration of goodness and love and what is right and wrong in the society. Susan. Uh, this is true. She says when governments undermine the authority of father and mother, they, by extension, begin to teach that any civil authority is able to be set aside. Hence the times we live. See, maybe I should have John. Are you able to? Yeah, yeah. Go, then, then it can be on the recording more easily, since you've got it. Is Cindy Welch. So my question was, obviously, I think you've answered this, but when governments say you may no longer homeschool, or you've seen this in other countries, like we're not allowed any parents to homeschool, that is a, an infringement on the parent's right as the child. Uh, my next comment was, 
when we see government taking over things like the feeding of children, or we see government taking over, you know, potentially the, the clothing of children, would that be another infringement on parents? Yeah, the, the, um, the, the taking over of these responsibilities can be a very big danger area. So school lunch programs have devolved into breakfast and supper programs. Um, and, and so less and less are, and let's just go ahead and use the politically incorrect term of traditional activities and responsibilities of parents to change a diaper, to put cloth, clothing on the child, to feed the child, to nurture the child, to teach the child, to protect, protect the child, is being farmed out to other people. It's, it's, the, it's the single biggest obstacle for me, theologically, in church-run daycares that, that extend that out. Is there not another way? Or if there are certain after-school programs and so forth, the risk of them usurping the position of father and mother on the one hand, and on the other hand, a father and mother say, this is great. I, all I have to do is work a job and I pay these fees that allow everybody else to do my job. Okay? But you Sharif. never really get to know your children that either. Or they don't get to know you that, either. That can become yeah, a danger. So uh, this, uh, you know, if you're, you're invited to keep these and to underscore. The secular estates were established by God to maintain order and bridal sinful flesh. Or the sentence before that, earthly government was established after the fall. The offices of father, uh, of husband, wife, father, mother, actually predate man's fall. And with them comes the authority that is rooted in them. Okay. So anticipating next week uh, also a little bit further, fundamentally, foundationally, the academy exists to support and uphold parents in what God has given them to do, not to usurp those positions. Okay. So, uh, as this concludes here then, these offices originally gifts of God's love at creation, through which he intended his image of love to be displayed in the world. I mean, think about that. It's not government that is made in the image of God. It is husband and wife, father and mother, mankind made in the image of God to be fruitful and to exercise dominion. And so the exercise of dominion was given there even before the fall into sin, but given not to government, but to husband and wife, father and mother. So love moved him to create in the first place that he might give of himself to us. He intended his loving and giving nature to be reflected in us when he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So this is really the climax to this particular chapter in the essay. 
So uh, moving on, and then I'll open it up to some further questions and another observation or two. These offices were not first offices of the law, the law which threatens, the law which accuses, the law which was necessary because of sin, but rather offices of the gospel, which is about God's gift, God's doing in Christ. So we are to see the way in which we love as Christians in marriage as a reflection of the love of God in the gospel of Christ. We're to see the way in which we love as father and mother as a reflection of the love of God in Christ. That's why I said in the sermon this morning, Jesus saying to the, to the widow of Nain, do not be afraid, is like the mother. You know, he's not scolding her, not in the slightest, but like the mother who invites the child who is hurting, it's all right. Don't be afraid. Don't cry. Even though the sniffles still continue, it's a word of comfort that identifies with them, that stands with them. So it's the gospel that informs the way in which we love. So in other words, they were gifts of God's love through which his love was to be given and received in the procreation of children and their nurture and the knowledge and love of the Lord. This work and responsibility of fathers and mothers existed prior to man's fall. In other words, they were to be teachers of God's word to their children even before sin entered into the world. That's again why I say that although God establishes civil authority, governments and so forth, the authority of father and mother trumps that authority. It's why the large catechism says, from the authority of father and mother, all earthly authority is derived and developed. It's not the other way around. It's not, um, it's not that government is established and then from the authority of government, the authority of father and mother is derived. That's upside down. It needs to be understood and focused upon. And I think during times like we're in now, where these assertions are challenged and threatened, is why it's really important to pay attention to these things. All right, let's see here. Um, when man, man fell into sin, he lost the capacity to teach the word of God to his children. He was spiritually dead and blind, but through the work of Christ and the ministry of the gospel, the father and mother are restored to their rightful positions as teachers of the word of God to their children. Therefore, in the spiritual kingdom, these offices take on dimensions that far surpass that of mere earthly caretakers. They become spiritual fathers and mothers as they bring their children to the new birth of water and the word and continue in their catechization. Uh, this is an important, uh, important point to assert. The gospel, which treats us all without partiality, male, female, slave, free, and so forth, does not obliterate the offices and distinctions of, if you want to call it gender, prior to the fall. In other words, is it possible that we live in an age in which being biologically male or biologically female is no longer significant or important in our human identity? Is it possible that we're living in such a world? Well, we are living in such a world. And 
the liberal church that has set aside the word of God says this is fitting. And because of the gospel, the gospel teaches us that God is love, that God accepts everyone. And therefore, on the basis of the gospel, same-sex marriages are endorsed. Gender disfavor, you can choose what you want to be, so forth. That is not what the gospel does. Rather, the gospel restores and sanctifies those God-given orders of creation as they were historically uh, called. All right, so this has profound implications for any Lutheran day school and the authority of day school teachers. The authority of Lutheran day school teachers to teach both academic subjects and religion comes from the office of parent rather than the office of the ministry, but also it comes from the office of parent rather than being granted by the civil authority. This is a reality that we have failed to understand in our church today and which rarely governs the understanding of the service performed by our Lutheran day schools, but it is a crucial point. Now, when this was written over 25 years ago, the, the emphasis was to understand that the office of a day school teacher does not derive his or her authority from the office of the ministry, but from father and mother. What is Missing here is what we've just been talking about, and that is that the authority of father and mother is not derived from the secular government, but the other way around. Okay? Uh, anticipating next week's discussion, one of the things that I experienced uh, growing up, and particularly in college and then in, on vicarage, was the observation that in a lot of our Missouri Synod Lutheran schools, there was great um, turmoil between the school and the congregation, or more specifically, between the teachers and the pastor. So that the teachers saw themselves as incumbents of the office of the ministry, so they're ministers of religion in the classroom, and the pastor is the minister of religion in the pulpit, and never the twain shall, shall meet. And the biblical model there is, is uh, the proper biblical model, is that the office of the ministry has jurisdiction over Christian doctrine and the teaching and preaching of it across the board, as well as judging a practice. It's one of the actual, uh, among the many blessings of Peace Lutheran Academy, has been over the years having uh, a faculty that embraces the understanding, very simply, I'm not a pastor. I look to the pastor to teach me as a teacher so I can faithfully help my parents. Okay? And uh, so, believe it or not, we have day schools in which um, pastors are not, quote, allowed to lead chapel. How about that? Okay. But what I've been emphasizing a little bit more here uh, today is that the authority of the civil realm is derived from father and mother and not the other way around. Yes, John. 
got a question about the call of a day school teacher uh, and, uh, and, and its implication, and not implication, in fact, it says that they're ministers. Uh, I really have trouble with that. I don't understand it. Can you clarify that? Because I think that's part of the misunderstanding uh, where pastors are not allowed to, uh, thank you, John, would not allowed to conduct chapel. Yeah, you're, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, it's, John is asking the question about, he's, he's, he's questioning the uh, nomenclature of calling our, uh, of saying that our teachers are, are called ministers of religion because it lends itself to the usurpation of the God-given authority of the pastor of the congregation. And part of this is rooted in historical um, developments. When the Saxon immigrants came over here from Europe, uh, at the heart of their leaving the fatherland was the imposed uh, Prussian Union, this between Lutheran and Reformed, Reformed who did not accept the real presence of Christ's body and blood in the sacrament. So they really did leave for religious reasons. And in the schools, the Union churches and the Union schools, so there was no, there was no concept of a separation of church and state in any sense, like we tend to think of it in the US. Um, religion was part and parcel with the daily education in schools. So when we came over here, the idea, we want our schools so that we can teach our children Lutheran doctrine. Who is the most equipped to do that but the pastors? And they were our earliest teachers. In the, the one-man schoolhouse, you know, became the, the pastor as, as the teacher of those things. Um, so that's part of seeing it as part of the office of the ministry. As I'm going to argue next week, the teaching of mathematics, as wonderful as it is, and uh, my wife is a math teacher, you know, by, by trade, that's not, strictly speaking, the office of the ministry, which is narrowly defined as the preaching of the gospel and the administering of the sacraments, including the judging of doctrine and so forth, guarding the flock against false teaching. Uh, another phenomenon that took place historically was that during World War uh, II especially, uh, conscription of young men uh, for the war effort, it was feared, would deplete our Lutheran schools of male teachers. But if our, if our teachers could be ministers of religion, that would put them in another category to protect them from what later became known as the draft. So that's another historical phenomenon uh, that contributed to this. It's interesting, and we'll, we'll end here because this, this goes right into what, what next week's is, but I will say this. C.F.W. Walther was the founding um, president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And um, he had two stints as president of the synod. You know, he was on the boat that came over with the Saxons and 
Martin Stephan and so forth. And there was um, another theologian, his name was um, Herbert Lindemann. Does anybody know that name? Now Herbert Lindemann was the president of what was called the Teachers Seminary in Addison, Illinois, which later became our alma mater, mine and Beth's and John's and Samantha's and who else came from Concordia? Okay, and Lindemann, in a, as someone made, uh, brought these letters to my attention. Lindemann argued that the office of day school teacher was derived and developed from the office of father and mother under the fourth commandment. He received a rebuke from C.F.W. Walther for that teaching, threatening him with excommunication. And so Lindemann acquiesced. And that is the ultimate reason why there remains to this day confusion between whether or not day school teachers are in the office of the ministry or not. Our theology here, and what this advocates, based on the Lutheran confessions and the scriptures, is that it is a different office. Okay? And as we argued today, the office of a day school teacher is derived from father and mother, and father and mother as office is a greater office even than the secular realm that God has established. Kathy, last comment. Is it because, so he was, that was incorrect what he said to, would you? It, yes. Because you just told us that yes. it's from, okay. Yeah. You will not find that teaching in Martin Luther anywhere. Okay. So why did he say Well, <laughs> the, there you go, there you go. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.